Thanks for joining us and supporting Vicky Doe Fitness. We ask for your continued support by becoming an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join. Again, that's www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. And remember, keep listening, sharing, and checking us out. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about racism, health care, and COVID-19. Research has shown that COVID-19 cases and hospitalization rates are at least 2.5 to 4.5 times higher among black and brown communities. Structural inequalities, racism, and social determinants are the unsurprising reasons for such disparities. Dr. D. Banks Bright, our co-host and infectious disease specialist, will break it down for us. She will give us the latest on this issue and make suggestions on what we can do about it. All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks-Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks Bright. So, how are you, D? Hi, Vicki. How are you doing? I am fine. And so, it's cold, but that's okay. I'm warmed up yeah, here. That's all right. I'm warmed up in my office. Uh huh. Oh yeah. How's the heat? How's your heat working over there? It's working fine because I brought in an extra one. I said, forget this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna no. be freezing. No, no. I don't do cold. I don't do cold. That's it. Today we talk about racism, racism in the healthcare yeah. system, and COVID nineteen. Now, according to the JAMA Network Open, or JAMA Network Open, since the early stages of the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic, significant racial and ethnic inequalities or inequities have persisted across the continuum of COVID-19 morbidity, hospitalization, and mortality. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have estimated that COVID-19 case and hospitalization rates are at least 2.5 and 4.5 times higher, respectively, among Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations than among white populations. Black individuals have died from COVID-19 at more than twice the rate as white individuals. Area-based studies have similarly uh, revealed elevated COVID-19 infection and death rates in socially disadvantaged 
counties with larger racial and ethnic minority populations. In the context of intergenerational structural inequalities in the U.S., these trends are as devastating as they are unsurprising. As a nation and as a community, we need to address these issues head on with tangible solutions. And so our co-host, woohoo, Dr. D. Banks, right? Yes. <laughs> we'll talk more Yay. about <laughs> We'll talk more about this today and she will give us the latest on this issue and suggestions on what we can do about it. And so can't wait, we can't wait to hear more. Make sure, guys, make sure you subscribe to this podcast show. It's all about health and fitness, Vicky Doe Fitness, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and any other place that you listen to your podcast. You will be notified when we post new podcasts, and you will definitely be the first to know. And yes, we are continually scheduling great guests to join us in talking about important topics and concerns that affect our health and well-being and our communities. And so we have been tremendously successful in bringing outstanding guests, and I am so proud of the wealth of knowledge that we are being able to share with you. And so make sure, guys, make sure you subscribe to this show right now. And if you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Vicky Doe Fitness Podcast and follow the simple instructions and we will definitely appreciate that. Also, make sure you go to our resources page, vickydofitness.com forward slash resources. There you will find products and services that will be helpful to you as you embrace a life of health and fitness. And we have a variety of items on our resource list for you to check out and try. We have Reebok, Wobie Parker, Polar, iRemedy Healthcare, Spanx, The Right Stuff, Medical supplies, the right stuff is a medical supply space online for caregivers. So go check that out. We have Art of Tea. That's where I get a lot of those delicious flavors of tea because I love to drink tea. Art of Tea, check that out. Yogadownload.com and much more. But let's talk about ecolunchboxes.com. Now, Eco Lunchbox specializes in stainless steel bento boxes. Artisan fair trade lunch bags. They have napkins, they have snack sacks, and other eco friendly lunch wear. This company, Eco Lunch Boxes, is a certified green business and it is a consumer products company started by an eco friendly mom in the San Francisco Bay Area. And her story is told through text and video if you go on the company's website ecolunchboxes.com. And so the demand for reusable, waste-free lunch boxes and, and lunch bags is growing as families learn more about the dangers of plastics to both people and the planet. And so here's a space that you can go to. You can go and get these items. Let's start saving money today by going waste-free. And so I want you to go check out ecolunchboxes.com. They're pretty. They're, they're wonderful for your kids, you know, even if they're at home doing remote learning. 
put their little lunches in their little, that will be so cute, you know, in their little eco-friendly. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. cute. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Yes, guys, make sure you go check out ecolunchboxes.com. Make sure you go to our resource page, our resources page, vickidofitness.com forward slash resources for all of these amazing products and services. And remember, when you use any of the affiliate links to buy any of the products and services on our resources page, you're supporting us here at Vikido Fitness. And what do we say, D? We want to thank thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Well, D, school is back in session. It is? So, I mean, like face-to-face school? Face-to-face school, yes, at Kent State University. Now, some of my classes are face-to-face, and then the others, we got like 24 folks. I made that remote because there's no way we could ever all be in the same gathering. So... Not with social distancing. Not with social distancing, you're right. So I made that remote. But then my other class, we do remote this week, and then next week we're face-to-face. And so they did it so that not everyone everyone is on campus, you know, at the same time, you know. So so they did like a phase-in. So, yeah, but we're still meeting and wearing our masks. Wow. Wow. And doing all those things. Well, I, I started another class at YSU this semester called Stem Cell Biology, but it's remote. I don't know whether, well, I guess all state schools, some of them are doing a hybrid. Like this class is remote on WebEx, and I guess they are doing some face-to-face. I haven't been on campus, but, you know, um, there was some new news that came out this past week saying that they're trying to get kids back in school, like elementary school and secondary school because data has come out showing that there's no greater risk for these kids and teachers to be back in school than, you know, that which was good news that they're not super spreaders. I guess that was the term. Their schools are not super spreaders. Yeah, well, that's... At I, least the secondary and elementary. Now, colleges might be a little different situation because there you've got people living together and in dorms and all of that. Right. But with the, yeah, with the regular school, you can just come in, commute, go back home. Right, exactly. And, and then they can kind of control it a little bit better. Exactly. Well, we'll see because a lot of the kids, you know, even with the college students, you know, a lot of them are missing, you know, going to school. Well, they are. And it's nothing like being in the classroom. And I mean, I venture to say you're going to you miss you're going to miss out on a lot. What I fear are those younger kids are going to be behind in testing and all reading and all these other things that are so important in the first few years of your education. Because, unfortunately, not every household has the same kinds of resources. Not every household has, has Internet, Wi-Fi, you know. And so those kids are going to be severely disadvantaged when they go back to school. I know. But we'll see with the vaccines. You know, we'll have to see. Hopefully they'll be doing some. The vaccine will come in and hopefully these kids will be, you know, get connected. But I'm, I was looking uh, at television the other day. They're starting to do which I thought was a good idea, have hot spots in cities. So parents can bring, this was on Ellen one day, a mom had her kids in the car and they went to a hot spot. All of them had little laptops or whatever or iPads so they could get their homework out. And I thought that was a brilliant idea because they didn't have that at home. Yes, a hot spot. Yeah, that's a a, hot spot. Yeah. That's a good idea. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're doing it in Detroit. They're having areas that are hot spots. 
so parents can come and part, you know, their kids can get their homework out. Wow, that's a good idea. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm, sure is. Yep. So how was your week, though? How was your week this week? Oh, my week was still busy, although it's a little bit better in the hospital with COVID. You know, I was on last weekend, so um, I worked. But the numbers seem to be, we seem to be plateauing. Okay. And I'm just, I, I got my second vaccine since we've seen each other. My second day was, uh, I had I had a few more reactions this time, some muscle aches and pains, but it's, you know, everybody that I see that's got some complaint about it, I'm said, well, it's better than COVID. That's exactly so, it. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are on their second, on their second shot. So, yeah, it's better than COVID. So, you know, take some Tylenol or NSAIDs or something like that if you're having really big problems. And, and I say, keep it moving. Keep it moving. That's what I say as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm glad, you know, Nate got his second um, shot as well. Yeah, we were comrades together. I saw him in the hospital, yeah. We shall see. Hopefully um, all of us regular folk can get it as well. Well, I'm thinking that they're, they're ramping it up. They're trying to do 1.5 million a day. They're really wanting to do 2 million a day. So hopefully it's a new administration. It's only really been in for a week, and they seem like they've done a lot in just a week. I know. They can ramp this up. Yeah, I hope they can ramp it up. So that's cool. Oh, to, yeah. Yeah, that's cool to know. So what is going on this week? Everything, Vicki. Everything. Everything. This is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. United States Congress designated January as Cervical Health Awareness Month. And each year, more than 13,000 women 13,000 plus women are diagnosed with invasive cervical cancer. And that is cancer that has spread from the, the surface of the cervix to tissue deeper in the cervix or to other body parts. And more than 4,200 die from the disease. Now, the American Cancer Society is committed to helping prevent cervical cancer and they're developing guidelines that help find cervical cancer. They're also providing support and information about treatment options and coping with physical and emotional side effects. They also fund research that leads to finding better ways to prevent, detect, and treat cervical cancer. They say, you know, listen, no woman has to die from cervical cancer. No. That's it. Today, the disease takes the lives of 265,000 women every year across the globe and nearly 90 percent. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yes. Yes. And nearly 90 percent of those deaths occur in low and middle income countries. The focus is focus resources. If we can do that, we can eliminate death from cervical cancer worldwide. And so that is what the American Cancer Society, they are working with the federal government to scale up. And this vaccination is the HPV. So they're going to scale up. They're trying to scale up the HPV vaccination rates and do cervical cancer screening and treatment programs in developing countries uh, where they are needed most. And so I encourage all of you guys to learn more about the programs and services that the American Cancer Society is doing to prevent cervical cancer. Go to fightcancer.org. 
Uh, there should, you know, it should be a disease that should be hopefully in the next few years wiped out. If we can get everybody young vaccinated and men, young boys too, that it should be, you know, like duodenal ulcers. You don't hear that much anymore because we found out that it was due to helicobacter pylori and people take antibiotics. It's the same for cervical cancer, knowing that it's due now to the human papillomavirus. Get vaccinated. Yes. So get vaccinated with your HPV vaccination. And they do it early now, I think, don't they? Like 13? Yeah, down to nine. Nine, nine okay. Like that, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, like you said, we have a new president, and at the inauguration, at the inauguration, we had Amanda Gorman's poem. Yes. Yeah. Did you listen to that whole poem? And all I the- did. Youngest poet laureate, a youth poet laureate, till we climb. It was fantastic. I mean, I was thinking of Maya Angelou looking down on her because I remember when Dr. Maya Angelou read the poem for Clinton's inauguration, and I know she was looking down from heaven on this young girl who just knocked it out of the park. Yes. Yeah, so Amanda Gorman, she and her poem. Oh. Her poem is The Hill We Climb, and she's the National Youth Poet Literate and the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. So She was, and she's just, you know, she's everywhere now. She's on the talk show. I think she graduated from Harvard, as I'm reading more about her. Yes. Raised by a single mom, which she said in the poem. I thought I saw she was offered a job at one of the HBCUs, so... Good for her. Good for her. And her, her, her book um, is number one now on the New York bestseller. Yeah. Yeah. We'd like to encourage all of our young folks, keep doing what you're doing. Exactly. Yes, because it exactly. takes time. You you don't give up because you never know what, no, door, exactly. what doors will open up, right? Well, D. Yeah. Our health. I sent this to you, Vicky, because this is your pet peeve. Yes, I said, when you sent that, I started busted out laughing. I said, <laughs> <laughs> this is your pet peeve. That's it. Our health tip this time, and this was on Dot Wire News. It says, there is no such, what it says, no such thing as fat but fit for heart health. And it's a study. And so listen, it was written by Eric, and he says, an analysis from the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology suggested that being overweight or obese still poses significant cardiovascular risks, even if one exercises regularly. And so the authors of the research letter used data from over 527,000 participants. Of those, 42% had normal weight, 41% were overweight, and 18% were obese. Participants received routine medical examinations as part of their normal health care coverage with physician-directed examinations, and that's from um, 2012 to 2016, and um, these are collected as the final examinations. The authors assessed body mass index, BMI, as well as leisure time, physical activity levels, inactivity levels as well. And participants were categorized as inactive, meaning no moderate or vigorous physical activity, insufficiently active, 
That means not meeting WHO minimum physical activity recommendations for adults, which is 150, you know, that means that they will be, since they're insufficiently active, that means these guys are less than 150 minutes per week, and they are less than 75 minutes per week in doing moderate and vigorous physical activity, respectively. Or they also were categorized as whether they were regularly active, and that means greater than or equal to 150 minutes per week of moderate physical activity or greater than or equal to 75 minutes per week of vigorous physical activity or a combination thereof. Now, researchers also took diabetes prevalence, hypertension, and hypocholesterolemia or high cholesterol information as well. They use logistical regression to determine the link between each BMI physical activity group and the prevalence of cardiovascular disease risk factors. According to the results, being either regularly or insufficiently active provided cardiovascular protections compared to inactivity for all risk factors within each BMI category. They also reported, however, that regular insufficient physical activity was not sufficient to compensate for the negative effects of overweight obesity, which remained at higher risk for cardiovascular disease compared to those with normal weight, regardless of physical activity levels. This was said, our study suggests that although physical activity mitigates at least partly the detrimental effects of overweight obesity on cardiovascular disease risk, excess body weight per se is associated with a remarkable increase in the prevalence of major risk factors as reflected by approximately two, five, and fourfold higher odds for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes among active but obese individuals compared with their inactive peers with normal weight. And this is what the researchers wrote. And so weight loss per se should remain a primary target for health policies aimed at reducing cardiovascular risk in people with overweight and obesity. So what do you say to that, D? Well, you know, we've had these conversations about some of these entertainers. That, in fact, I just saw one today in Essence Magazine who was, you know, be a, a very, you know, high BMI and was talking about this thing, about this curve, you know, these curves and body image and all of that. And we get that. I mean, you and I get that. And, you know, I certainly get that with COVID, with the COVID-19 situation. But what we have to understand that all of those things, lead to hypertension, diabetes, elevated cholesterol, all those other things. And this article points out that some of the, you know, exercise, it mitigates some of this, Mm -hmm. but not those major things that lead to cardiovascular disease and, and, and so forth that lead to high morbidity and mortality. And certainly, with COVID, mm-hmm. what we know now is obesity is probably the number one risk factor for 
COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So we're back yeah. to what we've always said. And yes, D, that is my pet peeve. Yeah, because we know yeah. overweight and obesity, those are precursors for all these other things that we They get. are. Yeah, all these other things. So let's hone in on that and let's try to yeah. do what we can through exercise and healthy eating to control our weight. And that's the moral of the story. <laughs> and that is the moral of the story. And I'm happy to say for the last three weeks, I've been swimming at least four times a week for an hour at the JC. So I'm, I would like to think that I'm back. You know, it's hard getting back with inertia when you get out and you de- you're deconditioned. But I realize that my cardiovascular is still pretty good. And just getting back into the pool, when I get there, it's like, oh, God, you know. But then I jump in and I say, nobody's going to do this for me. That's it. I have to do it for myself. And that's the thing with exercise. Nobody's going to swim for you. Nobody's going to work out for you. This is something that you have to do yourself. And so I just get myself motivated. So, yeah, I'm happy. Yes, yes, yes. Because work has been getting us down, you know, working and quarantining and people have tended to do nothing but eat and sleep and work. I mean, for us, we haven't been quarantining, but I just said we need, we all need to take control of our health because nobody else. Nobody else is. We got to take control of our health. You're so right. So what's the latest, D? Well, I'm going to talk about the latest today with COVID-19 and African-Americans and racism and variants and all of the above. All right. Vaccines. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, D. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Haywood-Doe. I just wanted to break in for a quick second and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood-Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicky Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs, initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, cardiac rehab, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, get in touch with us at info at To find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. Well, today we talk about racism and COVID-19. What and why are there such disparities in our black and brown communities? Our co-host, the one and only Dr. D. Banks Bright, will talk about this issue and give us suggestions on what we can do to find tangible solutions and such. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to touch on, you know, several things today that have to do with racism and COVID-19 and vaccine hesitancy, and they all kind of come together. And just to start out with, I gave a lecture this morning myself and Dr. Dial Hewlett, who is 
from New York were all part of the Infectious Disease Society of America. He happens to be African-American, too. And we talked about structural racism and health care as it relates to a lot of diseases and infectious disease diseases and also COVID-19. So to start out with, this isn't the first pandemic of sorts that we have had. I mean, it's impacted us differently, but it seems that pandemics tend to lend themselves to targeting poor people. For example, there were a lot of social disadvantages associated with the HIV epidemic. Many of us have forgotten that because now instead of patients dying from diagnosis to death 14 months, patients are living to ripe old ages of life expectancy and taking instead of 14 to 15, 16 pills, one pill. You have minorities, color, sexual minorities, poor access to um, drugs, the highly active antiretroviral therapy. You had issues with compliance. You had dis and misinformation, access to PrEP, which we've talked about on here. And those have hit the minority community hard. And then we had hepatitis C infection. Infection with chronic hepatitis C is a leading cause of liver disease, liver cancer, and liver-related death in the United States. And African-Americans age 60 and older are 10 times more likely to be chronically infected. African-Americans comprise 11% of the population, but they represent 25% of the people with chronic hepatitis C infections. And the, the numbers are still the same with other infectious diseases. So I guess it was about April, Dr. Anthony Fauci, whom we all know, summed up the situation with COVID when he said that following a a television White House briefing, he said the impact of COVID is shining a very bright light on an unacceptable, on unacceptable health disparities for African Americans. And it has demonstrated weaknesses and foibles in our society. So what are some of the comorbid factors associated with increased risk of COVID, like we were talking about, hypertension, obesity, and diabetes? And when you look at the list, um, looking at a graph now, who has it? African Americans, let's just take hypertension. African Americans, black, non-Hispanic, 40.3%. Hispanic, 27.8%. White, non-Hispanic, 278 let us look at obesity, uh, BMI greater than 30, 38. 4% black, 32.6% Hispanic, and 28.6% white non-Hispanic. Diabetes, the numbers are pretty much the same with um, black non-Hispanic at 12.3, Hispanics at 12.6, and white non-Hispanics at 8.1. So a little bit more of a bump in Hispanic. In New York, which was one of the main cities that they started to look at socioeconomic factors and and race and ethnicity with respect to COVID. In New York City, African-Americans and the Latinx population accounted for the majority of frontline workers in all six categories, including health care, emergency medical services, trucking, postal service, building construction and maintenance, grocery and pharmacy, child care and public transit. All of these occupations placed employees at high risk for exposure COVID-19, and we know that many of them were represented by persons of color, crowded living conditions in urban centers, multi-generation households, reliance on public transportation, and I'll touch on more of this a little bit later. When I did my presentation this morning, I started out with, let's do some definition of terms, because everybody throws terms around, and, you know, from my standpoint, these are some of the 
definitions that I got from an organization called the Aspen Institute. And when I looked up the Aspen Institute for these definitions, it was really neat because this organization kind of does good with everything, diversity, art, culture, economy. And I looked at the people who were on the board of trustees, people like Henry Louis Gates, Stephen Clark, a lot of physicians, a lot of people, you know, prominent people in the world that are about making changes. And I thought, wow, I want to be on the board of trustees for the Aspen Institute. Mm -hmm. What is structural racism? So structural racism is a system in which public policies, institutional policies, cultural representations, and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. Structural racism identifies dimensions of our history and culture that have allowed privileges associated with whiteness and disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. Structural racism is not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic, and political system in which we all exist. So what is racial equity? Racial equity refers to what a genuinely non-racist society would look like in a racially equitable society, the distribution of society's benefits and burdens would not be skewed by race. And this is in contrast to the current state of affairs that we find ourselves in today in which a person of color is more likely to live in poverty, be in prison, drop out of high school, be unemployed, and experience poor health outcomes. Now, the term systemic racism is often interchanged with structural racism. And they're synonymous. But if there's a difference between the terms, it can be said to exist in the fact that a structural racism analysis pays more attention to the historical, cultural, and social psychological aspects of our currently racialized society. And then diversity. And sometimes I think diversity is overused. Uh Don't you sometimes? Yes, yes. I mean, it's sometimes overused. Yes. Diversity, in the strict terms of a definition, The structural diversity has come to refer to the various backgrounds and races that comprise a community, nation, or other grouping. In many cases, the term diversity does not just acknowledge the existence of diversity of background, race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, and so on, but it implies an appreciation of differences. So we know that racial minorities bear a disproportionate burden of morbidity and mortality. And racism may be one cause of these inequities. Studies find that individuals who report experiencing racism exhibit worse health than people who do not report it. And the discussion, however, is limited by inadequate attention to the multiple dimensions of racism, particularly structural racism, which we talked about. As we talked about a little bit ago about pandemics like HIV and tuberculosis way back in the day, pandemics always follow the fault lines, like the fault of the earthquake, of society exposing and often magnifying power inequities that shape population health even in normal times. And soon that reality became very clear to all with the disproportionate representation of black and brown people with the COVID pandemic. And this author that I was referencing today, the article is entitled Systemic Racism, Chronic Health Inequities, and COVID, A Syndemic in the Making. And it says that he also said that he feels that the problem may still be very underestimated in terms of the impact on 
the black and brown community. Data alone is not enough. We need an explicit conceptual framework to know what the numbers mean, state the questions researchers ask, and direct attention to appropriate public health and policy responses. We're hoping with the new administration that they will look at some of these issues with respect to policy and social issues that make up why individuals who, for example, who are COVID, who have COVID, why the, the situation is disproportionate. So we're hoping they have a great Biden-Harris team. I know some of the, one or two of the physicians that are on that, so we're all hopeful. And let's get back to COVID. I would have to say, as some people interview me, when we started taking care of COVID patients, oh, about maybe March, they were coming in fast and furious. I don't think, and I think, you know, your husband, was he was in that front wave of individuals, doctors who saw these COVID patients, and I don't think we really looked at anybody's race. They were coming in, they were dying fast, they were men, women, overweight, not, you know, elderly, and so forth. And then I guess I was giving a lecture to the National Black Journalist in Cleveland in April, and I was doing this lecture, and one of them said, one of the persons says, have you heard that there's a disproportionate representation population of individuals who are African Americans? And I said, no, I haven't, I haven't heard that. And they said, well, there's an article coming out of Milwaukee that's showing that African Americans are disproportionately represented. This was on a Saturday. Uh-huh. Just like, I don't know what, all of a sudden reports started to come out, media reports showing that, for example, in Chicago, where African Americans comprise a third of the city's population, they account for half of those who have tested positive for the coronavirus and almost three-quarters of the COVID deaths. Likewise, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, African Americans make up 70% of deaths due to the coronavirus, but just 26% of the counties of the county's population. So these examples are not exceptional, and the trend is not limited to African Americans. It involves the Latinx community and also what we now are seeing emerging, the emerging involvement of our Native American communities. The virus has moved out west. And we know that our Native American indigenous population, they are involved in structural racism. Um, of course, you know, like I say, they were all pushed on a reservation. Right. Um, their situation in many respects is worse than African Americans to a certain extent because when I worked in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, the minority population was the Dakota Indians. And many of the women suffered from alcoholism, obesity, hypertension, there was a lot of domestic violence, kids born with fetal alcohol syndrome, and all these kind of things that social determinants of health. So now, again, we see, not surprising, uh-huh. that COVID is emerging in the Native American community. Why? These communities share common social and economic factors that are already in place before the pandemic. So it's kind of like people had an epiphany, like, oh, okay, African Americans and, and Latinx population and at that time, the Native Americans weren't part of this. But the, the, the issues around structural racism and social determinants of health have been here for a very long time. So for me, it was just kind of like the perfect storm of something to happen to see this. Again, let me repeat, living in crowded conditions. Crowded living conditions are a difficult challenge that is the result of longstanding racial, residential segregation, and redlining policies. 
which I won't even get into. That's a whole. That's a whole different. That. Yeah, that's a whole different uh, dissertation whole different on that dissertation. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult for ten individuals living in a three-room apartment to appropriately physical distance. We need to do more advocacy on these broader issues like this, um, housing. You know, we had a. I'm not going to specifically talk about people, but we had somebody who was in housing urban development on a national level in the last administration. I'm not exactly sure what he did, but all I know is now we have somebody new, and hopefully some of these issues with better housing conditions will be helped. Working in essential fields, many of us, including myself, I was an essential worker. We couldn't sit at home mm-hmm. and work downstairs while the family worked upstairs so not everybody has two or three levels in their homes, and many of us don't work on computers at home. Everybody, you know, bus drivers had to be out. Grocery persons had to be out. And, and the, the environmental services people in the hospital, and many of them were minorities. And so they came in contact with the virus. Inconsistent access to health care. Well, this has been going on since HIV, since tuberculosis. This has been going on for a long time, and it still hasn't been fixed. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2021 talking about the same issues, Vicki. I know. Inconsistent access to health care due to lack of insurance or underinsurance. We were talking about that in the Obama era mm-hmm. with the Affordable Care Act. Here we are, mm-hmm. 12 years later, we're still talking about the same situation. So being able to afford doctor's visits, medications, and equipment to manage chronic disease is essential to lowering the risk of death from covid and other conditions. For instance, a patient with badly controlled diabetes or asthma due to inconsistent treatment is more at risk for severe, even deadly, coronavirus infection. And what about chronic health conditions? People of color have a higher burden of chronic health conditions associated with poor outcome with COVID. Diabetes, like I said, heart disease, lung disease, there was a study that was cited in, by the CDC that about 90% of those hospitalized with severe COVID had at least one of the aforementioned medical conditions. And then lastly, stress and immunity. Studies have proved that stress has a physiological effect on the body's ability to defend itself against disease, income equality, discrimination, violence, and institutional racism contribute to chronic stress and people of color that can wear down immunity, making them more vulnerable to disease. So how can we fight this racial disparity in the pandemic? Instituting fair housing policy, improving employment opportunities, and taking other steps to mitigate economic inequality will benefit people of color in the next health emergency. But, you know, that's a lofty undertaking. So now let's roll around to the, the issue of the day. We now have a disease. We now know that it is disproportionately affecting black and brown people, but we're not getting vaccinated. I know. And we're not getting vaccinated. And the numbers are abysmal. And so what we're finding is that there is a large mistrust in the community of the government having come up with this vaccine so fast. We all know Tuskegee syphilis experiment where these men in Alabama who had syphilis, the government came in and wanted to know what the ultimate outcome of syphilis would be. And so when penicillin came around in the 40s, 
and they had the opportunity to offer these men a treatment, they decided they weren't going to do it, and they just watched the men ultimately to see what happened with development of syphilis and watched them, you know, ultimately die. Women, you know, their partners became, uh, developed syphilis, children, and so forth. And physicians, black and white, were complicit in that experiment. Then we have the immortal life of Henrietta Lack, mm-hmm. where we had a black woman at Johns Hopkins who had cervical cancer. That's just what we were talking about today. Mm-hmm. And they noticed when she died, when they took her, her cervix, that she had these cells that just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And they decided to harvest these cells without the permission of the family. And they are called HeLa cells. Mm-hmm. And this happened in 1954. And pharmaceutical companies have made billions and mm-hmm. billions of dollars off of these HeLa cells to grow a lot of different things. In fact, I was telling you, I was taking this class at YSU on stem cell biology. Mm-hmm. The other day, the professor was talking about this. He was talking about, well, HeLa cells. And I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Walker, mm-hmm. you know the history of HeLa cells. And he was on it. He goes, yes, Dr. Banks, I'm aware. And then he had to tell the kids in the class because uh-huh. they didn't know. Right. So right. We, have, we have that. And, so, um, and then we have the eugenics experiment in um, North Carolina where uh, women were um, sterilized against their, mm-hmm. many of them were people of color. Mm-hmm. So black Americans, who are more likely to be impacted by COVID-19 are less likely to be vaccinated. And one of the things that we have done in our organization, the Infectious Disease Society of America, the black physicians, those of us that have come together, mm-hmm. we have decided to try to, like the other day, I had a Zoom presentation with Reverend Macklin and the mayor. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Messengers, people that look like me. Mm-hmm. And we feel that unless we get trusted messengers out into this community of people, I mean, Sanjay Gupta does not speak for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoy watching CNN and this and that. But one of the things we've talked about on our Zoom conversations, the black ID doctors, is that you don't see any black doctors I know. like us. And no black physician infectious disease people. Exactly. And no disrespect to any of my colleagues that are emergency room doctors or global health or whatever. But they would like to hear from some black infectious disease specialists. Yes. So we have been availing ourselves to media to get this out because, as I say, this is a public health crisis, mm-hmm. a public health situation. If people don't get vaccinated, we won't have an artificial herd immunity so that we can stop wearing masks ultimately in another year or two or whatever. Um, the other thing is that the other numbers that are abysmal mm-hmm. is healthcare work. Mm. You have nursing homes and hospitals. So you might have, oh, all the nursing home residents want to take it and they're lined up, but you may only have, the numbers are abysmal. I would say the numbers go from anywhere from 35 to 50% of healthcare workers are only taking the vaccine. You do the math. Wow. And many of them, Many of them are black and brown people, and many of them, you know, are dealing with myths. There are a lot of myths that are running around. There are a lot of of fallacies. And so there's a lot of work to be done. So what can be done? I was asked this morning on a Zoom presentation, what can be done? And these were people that were not people of color, but I said, you know, everybody needs to gear up and be in a trusted messenger. There's nothing magical about it. It would be nice if everybody, you know, that came to people of color 
represented that, but that's not going to happen. What is important is the message. The messenger is important, but since we don't have enough black infectious disease people to go around and so forth, we have to get everybody on board. And one of the suggestions that I made was do your due diligence. Mm -hmm. Find out. Do some reading. Why is the black community, why is the Latinx community, why do they have a mistrust of the community? Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the other things that has popped up, well, how did this vaccine come up all of a sudden? And you have to explain to people, this vaccine, this type of vaccine, messenger RNA, has been worked on since the early 90s. One of the reasons that they've had problems bringing it to a vaccine, and it's very unstable, as you can see, when you have to store the Pfizer in minus 70 and the Moderna at minus 30. Mm -hmm. And I also point out there's a wonderful young woman. I happen to be on a panel with her. Of course, she'll be getting the Nobel Prize. I'm sure she'll never remember me. But mm -hmm. her name is Dr. Kizmikia <laughs> Corbett. Uh -huh. And Dr. Kizmikia Corbett is from the National Institutes of Health, African-American young woman from North Carolina, Ph.D. She helped to develop the Moderna vaccine. Ah. Here you have it. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. We are not getting vaccinated. At the end of the, the latest statistics that are even out today, that this big push that the Biden, that President Biden has to vaccinate 2 million people a day and to get 100 million people vaccinated in 100 um, days, vaccines don't prevent disease. Vaccinations do. Yes. And so we have a lot of, we have a lot of work to do. So, I'm going to close with that. Well, I'm going to say yes, that we will make a commitment right here on our show to get the word out and encourage people when they have an opportunity, because now, you know, it's um, coming out slowly, but they're trying to ramp it up. But if we have that opportunity, go and get vaccinated. Make sure you get yeah. your vaccination. I can't wait till yeah. I'm lined up, most especially since I'm yeah. being, being around a lot of the students. And so I'm trying to figure out when, yeah. they, when they're going to start doing it in the universities. But I'm sure they'll probably start doing it pretty soon. And one of the things we have to also remember, or not remember, to be have a heightened awareness is that there are these new variants that are popping up. I know. UK, South America, South Africa, and we see them now popping up in the United States. It was said today that the vaccines, this is from Rochelle Walensky, mm -hmm. they believe that the vaccines are going to cover the variant. But when people say they might, we think, that's not... That, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and not so confidence. We, that's not 100%. We think, we, we hope. Mm -hmm. um, that's not 100%. But what we do know is that if we get enough people vaccinated, even the variants won't have any place to go. So uh, viruses live, have to live on a host. And if people have to build up antibodies, even if it's to the non-variant ones, hopefully those variant, those mutations with those variants will die down. So we do need on this show to continue to we'll make it our mission to encourage every week to people for people to get vaccinated. Yes, that's yes, a, yes. That's a good thing that we can do. Yes, that's us doing our part. And I'll also say I get 
asked all the time about, well, what can we do about our immune system? And one of the things is, yes, this is the time since we're talking about overweight and obesity and weight loss and and eating right, healthy. This is the start of the new year. This is the time to hunker down and do the things that you need to do to be more healthy because that will protect your immune system or at least boost your immune system. Yes, yes. Exactly. Yes, Dee, thank you. And that ends our show. You so, are so welcome. Do you have any tips then so you can well, summarize? I do. Get vaccinated. If you have any town halls in your communities or webinars, they're all over the place now. Zoom into them. We're trying to get more faith based leaders to participate, the churches. You know, it's kind of like if the mountain won't come to Mohammed, Mohammed will come to the mountain. So we're taking the message on the road to um, churches. I've done a couple family Zooms. Mm-hmm. Family okay. members, we were just talking about that this morning. They said, oh, you're crazy to take it off. We don't want to take it. So, you know, our friend Dr. Tonya Farmer Pitt, uh-huh. I did a Zoom presentation with her family. Ah. About, I don't know, 20 of us on the call. That's nice. So I'm just doing these these smaller presentations, family, friends, bigger, and so forth. It takes a village, right? It takes a village. It absolutely does, Vicki. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much, Dee. Thank you. We're going to definitely make that our mission to spread the word about the vaccination for COVID-19. If it's available, when it's available, be in line. Because like Dee said, exactly. you know, you might have a few um, side effects. You know, you don't feel too good for a minute. But that's better than getting COVID-19. Absolutely. And any of the side effects that you have are better than COVID-19. So there it is. And the side effects are short-lived. Very short mm-hmm. So it's a small price to pay. A small price to pay. And as always, for more information, go to our website, vickidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook, and share with us your thoughts. Make sure you become an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to vikidofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. As a premium member, you will have exclusive access to our archive of more than 100 past premium podcast shows. Free subscription to our monthly newsletter, and much, much more. But most of all, you will receive exclusive subscriber premium member only episodes of our From the Desk of Vicky Doe. In these episodes, I will focus on special health fitness topics and answer your most common health fitness questions. So go right now. Go to vickydofitness.com forward slash join and become and it's all about health and fitness premium member by subscribing to our premium membership you are supporting Vicky Doe Fitness which allows us to continue to produce valuable content including new podcasts and as always thank you thank you thank you for your support keep listening sharing and checking us out 
You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.